Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. Welcome back, everybody. Look, I just want to say how much I appreciate you. Thanks for spending some time with us here on our show today. I'm going to keep my opening comments short. We have an amazing guest on our show today, Miss Natalie Brunel. Natalie is the host of the Coin Stories podcast. She's also an international speaker on the topic of Bitcoin. She's a journalist and a very passionate spokesperson. And frankly, I was humbled that she agreed to be on this show. And if you're interested in this topic like I am, then you're in for a very big treat today. So why did we do this topic? How is it related to Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement? Well, this is a personal interest of mine, and I've been studying crypto, and I began to invest a little money in Bitcoin over the past six months. And really, for all the reasons that Natalie will explain to us today, I think as a people of faith, we have to explore and understand new technologies, especially when they could potentially redefine the financial industry like cryptocurrency. The crypto market right now has been compared to what the internet was in the 1990s. And so for those of us who were around back then, we remember dial-up, America Online. We remember waiting five minutes to load a web page and so on. We saw the potential for video conferencing way back then, but the hardware and the internet infrastructure could barely make it work. Now we can FaceTime on our cell phone phones using a cell signal. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of people who are very much smarter than me, crypto will do the same thing over the next 20 years. And specifically, Bitcoin will play a huge role in all of this. And there's so much information out there on this topic, and it's hard to know who to trust. And so I will not only put a link to Natalie's podcast in our show notes, but I will also suggest a couple of other credible YouTube channels and podcasts that I would recommend if you'd like to continue your education and your journey in Bitcoin. And now, let's get to work. So today, I'm pleased to welcome Natalie Brunel, the host of the Coin Stories podcast. And in a moment, I will offer a proper introduction to Natalie in this interview. We go through the genesis of Bitcoin, how it all began, what is it, and why is it so relevant to our current economic situation today? And so without further ado, here is Natalie Brunel. Well, Natalie, welcome to the podcast. So glad to have you here on Advancing Our Church. Well, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So I'm going to offer a little bit of an introduction to this topic because it's just a little bit different than what we normally talk about here on the show. Today, we're going to talk about Bitcoin and the way we've kind of crafted this conversation. Uh, we've brought Natalie Brunel, who is one of the leading voices in Bitcoin nationally and internationally, to talk with us a little bit about what Bitcoin is and how it could have huge ramifications for changing our world and, and how this could also make a huge contribution even to the Catholic Church and to so many organizations. I'm going to start this conversation also by making it clear that this podcast is not offering any financial advice and that the opinions that we'll share are our own. Uh, please always do your own research before making any kind of financial investment. So let me offer a little bit of an intro to Natalie. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated investigative journalist, podcast host, and educator. She hosts the popular Coin Stories podcast, where she features the leading voices in Bitcoin and economics. Natalie took the stage and the anchor desk again most recently at the worldwide 2022 Bitcoin conference in Miami. Natalie is a former ABC News correspondent and most recently a senior correspondent and investigative reporter for Spectrum News in Los Angeles. 
She's also an adjunct instructor of advanced video storytelling at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Again, Natalie, welcome. So glad to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks for reading my resume. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's interesting to talk about Bitcoin today because of what the markets are doing, over, especially over the last couple of days. I checked right before we went live here. And Bitcoin is hovering just below $30,000. But just to give our listeners kind of the, the scope of the market, it's currently trading in a market cap of $566 billion. There's a volume of $75 billion. And, and there's always this limited circulating supply of just 19 million Bitcoin out there. And we know just through research and other studies that many of those Bitcoin have been lost and probably will not be recovered. So it's actually considerably less than 19 million. Bitcoin out there. So just to get us started, so our listeners can get to know you a little bit, Natalie, tell us a little bit about your career. And as you like to say on your podcast, tell us a little bit about your journey towards Bitcoin. Sure. Well, thank you again for having me. My background, like you mentioned, is mostly in media, but I always like to take it, take my story a little bit further back. I'm a first generation immigrant here in the United States. My family is from Eastern Europe and they fled communism. My parents grew up under a communist regime and they know what it's like to live in a society where there is no sense of upward mobility, social mobility. And so they always dreamt of coming to the United States for the American dream, for a sense of economic freedom and opportunity to really make your own destiny, depending on, you know, how hard you work. And so they came to the U.S. when I was very young and I watched them work really, really hard. They both, you know, sometimes held multiple jobs, worked from morning until night, sometimes into the weekends. And they were finally able to afford their first home in the U.S. in about the early 2000s and a couple years into owning it after, you know, putting a down payment on, taking out a mortgage, the financial crisis hit and my family lost everything. So you have to understand for, you know, a young girl growing up, hearing the stories of my parents of the country they came from, coming here, seeing them work really hard, play by all the rules, pay their taxes, really great people, work really, really hard. All of a sudden they lost everything. And so I I sort of had this seed planted in me at a younger age that something's wrong with the system and it advantages the wealthy at the expense of everybody else, at the expense of the middle class, the working class. And it caused me to be a little bit frustrated. And I had always wanted to be a journalist. So I set off uh, in my career. The financial crisis happened just as I was leaving college. So I embarked on my career with this feeling that I want to hold the powerful accountable and I want to understand what, you know, what really happened and maybe what could potentially fix it. And at the time, I really didn't understand because, you know, I have to say that through my lessons in Bitcoin, I have learned that we have very poor financial literacy education in this country across the board. I went to great schools, great public schools, great universities, private universities, and I really never learned what the money printer is or the history of money. So there's something wrong with that because it took me down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin to really understand. So I discovered Bitcoin in 2017 while I was a reporter, like so many out there that might be listening to this show, I was skeptical. I didn't understand it. I didn't see the value. I thought it was just a very risky digital product that potentially could go to zero. And then I spent years studying it. And that's what gave me the conviction that I have in Bitcoin. The reason I have conviction in Bitcoin is because our system is so manipulated and it is controlled by the few who have access to this monetary spigot. And so they get access to capital and they can, you know, make investments the way that they want to at the expense of everybody else. And they can socialize their losses and privatize their gains. And so we've seen this real decline of the middle class 
real decline of, of the labor class in this country. And I think we've seen sort of a, a decline of the American dream. People feel like they can't get ahead. They're working harder and harder and longer for money that's worth less. Their kids' education is going up. Their housing prices are going up. Someone that's leaving college right now, starting their career, they can't even think about owning a house because they're, they've gotten so expensive as the asset bubbles have been propped up by the money printer. And so we've, we've des descended into a society here in the United States, the land of freedom and opportunity that basically is polarized. People want to place blame somewhere. And it's giving rise to politicians who basically say, well, if you elect me, I'll hand out you know, money, I'll fix the problem, I'll blame that guy. When really, at the end of the day, both parties have really run up the debt, run up the deficit, funded programs that would have been better left to the free market, and caused a really great wealth concentration that is putting a downward pressure on everybody. And we're feeling it. And so Bitcoin is meant to address that. It's meant to take the power of money away from central authorities and distribute it across the whole world to all of us, like, like the internet distributed communication. So there's no one who controls Bitcoin. There's no one who can expand the supply. There's no one who can manipulate it. There's no one who can confiscate it from you. And it is the most perfect form of digital property that's ever been invented. And I know it's really hard to understand it like on an elevator pitch, but you know, that's <laughs> why I'm passionate about Bitcoin. Absolutely. And Natalie, I've heard you say on your podcast that you are a person of faith and, and everything you're saying, it sounds so much like a social justice issue that we're really experiencing in this country, especially when you talk about the money printer. This country is now 30, a record $30 trillion in debt. If you take a look at the debt clock and the, the Fed continues to hike rates and now the price of housing, I think about my own kids. I have young adults and in the next five years, they would be thinking about buying their first home. And it's just unbelievable how much they're going to have to even consider paying for just an, an average or even a slightly above average middle-class home. Tell us a little bit about how, how you view this as a as doing good in the world, as, as a person of faith, and, and how you see this kind of impacting us, those of us who have faith and want to do right. How does Bitcoin play into that? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked because you're right. I grew up in a faith-driven family, and I see a lot of providence in the invention of Bitcoin because mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the saying is the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And I certainly think that leaders that we've had over the last several decades and even centuries in other countries, mm -hmm. people come in with maybe good intentions and they want to help, but ultimately their policies lead to more pain, especially down the road, because we kind of kick the can down the road. We create debt that future generations can't pay for. And we end up crushing the people who are sort of the fabric of society. And we make the rich richer, which obviously makes everyone feel a little bit frustrated. And I think whether you're poor or rich, you want to live in a world where people have access to opportunity, where people can at least contribute if they are good people, if they're hardworking people. And we don't live in that world as much as we did anymore. It's certainly better in the US than it is in other countries, but that's largely because we've exported our dollars. We've become the, you know, we became the global reserve currency we created a monopoly on our money system. And now it's finally starting to crack because we will never be able to pay off the debt that we've gotten ourselves in. Now we have uh, digital infrastructures like these cryptocurrencies that will turn into central bank digital currencies and countries are starting to de-dollarize as we've seen in with recent global events. And I think it all puts a spotlight on the fact that we need a form of money that can't be manipulated and controlled and gives people access to be able to carry their value of the hard work that they do into the future. 
future. We have no savings technology that guarantees you value in the future because our dollars are worth less and less every single year. And what you have to do is take your dollars and risk them. You have to turn your house into a savings account, or you have to become a portfolio manager with stocks and bonds and bonds, obviously with lower and lower interest rates every year. And so going back to sort of my religious faith, I think that Bitcoin is coming to us at the perfect time where we are now at an intersection of these political and geopolitical and financial crises, but we also have technology and technology can fix some of these problems, especially if we understand it and we harness the power of it and we, we take advantage of the opportunity that is before us. And in many ways, I mean, I've compared Bitcoin to Noah's Ark and whether you're religious or not, you know the story, right? There's right. a flood that's coming and it threatens to wipe out everyone. And Noah works hard to try to get all of the animals onto the ark before the flood comes. And in many ways, that's what Bitcoiners are trying to do. We know the flood is coming. It's really, you know, the music has been playing and it's sort of starting to stop. And that's why we see, I think, so much volatility in the markets. We can't service all the debt that we're in. And we're just trying to usher people onto this parallel system that is based on computer science and math and truth, and that is accessible to everyone. All you need is an internet connection and a phone, and you can opt out into this financial order that's actually based on value and supply and demand and real prices and not all of the manipulated you know, interest rates and money printing that our current system is based on. And so I really, you know, I know that things are volatile right now because they're impacted by this greater macro picture that we're in and how much debt we've created. But I really see Bitcoin as this beacon of hope. And I personally think that there's something divine in that. Absolutely. And you know, the, the conversion or the, as we think about Bitcoin as the new standard, people have talked about it as digital gold or the, or the new gold standard. It doesn't feel like we're going to be able to get there through a, a nice, easy, smooth path of transition. You know, we look at the economy the way it is now. And we look at the war in Ukraine, which we'll talk about in a minute, but has probably been almost made the case for Bitcoin in so many ways that, that we're not otherwise visual, I think, to the world. But the road to, to Bitcoin is probably not going to be an easy one in that we're going to have some bumps along the way like we have now with our current economy before people wake up and realize the realism of, of what it can offer. I completely agree. And I think especially for the United States, where so many of us haven't questioned the current system because it's really all we've known. And we've had the privilege of being the US dollar, which was the global reserve currency. But yeah. I think Bitcoin causes you to stop and question, you know, what is money and what is the function of money? Because mm -hmm. a currency, especially one that has as much global dominance as the US dollar, should not be collapsing in purchasing power and making it so difficult for families to afford basic necessities, the basic needs that prevent them from rioting in the street. And so I think it causes us to take a step back and say, what has happened over the last several decades to the global superpower that is the United States, where now the wealthy are getting wealthier, they're taking over a huge percentage of wealth, and the middle class is getting crushed, it went from being the largest portion of our population to a smaller and smaller amount every single year. And so once you start to kind of unpack, well, what is money, money is supposed to serve as a store of value as a savings technology, and also a medium of exchange, and we're supposed to price things in money, but everything has become so distorted. Like I mentioned earlier, you basically, we all have our houses. If we own them as savings accounts, mm -hmm. rent is skyrocketing to a point that I really do feel sorry for people that are coming out of school. They have their first right. jobs because the wages are not keeping up and we have to take risks in stocks and, and, or try to, you know, purchase bonds that are getting increasingly negative interest rate yields. Oh, exactly. And so, you know, what do you do and how, and how do you escape? It's like Bitcoin was created again to solve these very 
scary problems, but I know it can be very intimidating for people because it is digital. It is a little bit complicated to understand. You have to do a little bit of homework to appreciate it. But I just, I try to liken it to the internet. When the, in the nineties, the internet came out, number one, we had a lot of people underestimate the power of how this would transform our economy. Every business is now an e-business, right? All of our communication is now digital. And we also, I think, saw that major first dot-com bubble, which I think we're seeing it with crypto at large. It means that, you know, anyone can create a website. Anyone can start these types of businesses. That doesn't mean that there is value and there is value in decentralization. So in the same way that the internet is distributed around the whole world, anyone can have access to it with electricity and, and power, but no one owns it. There's no headquarters of the internet. And if you shut it down in one country, that doesn't mean you shut it down around the whole world. It's essentially bomb-proof in that way. Mm -hmm. And Bitcoin is the same way. So you don't necessarily have to understand the complicated programming and the brilliant computer science behind it mm -hmm. to appreciate and get so much use out of it as this pristine digital property that no one can ever take from you or manipulate. So, you know, that's why I'm really passionate about sort of spreading the, the message and education because it can be difficult to learn and it causes you to have to unlearn all the things you thought you knew about money and our current financial system. And when we say decentralization, just so people understand, it means, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that nobody owns Bitcoin. It means that nobody can manipulate it like they do with the money printing, correct? Yeah, that's correct. You know, it's yeah. funny because Bitcoin is also apolitical. Yeah, right. we're seeing a lot of uh, Democrats coming out against it. And I always like I always question that. I, don't, I always wonder why, because Bitcoin is truly the most democratic form of money. It's owned by the people. It's reinforced by the people all right. over the world. And it provides financial inclusion and banks the unbanked. What more could people on the left want? So I hope that Bitcoin actually is the thing that brings our country together yep. and can be the kind of agreement point for both Republicans and Democrats, because we've become so polarized because literally Bitcoin is for the people. It is the people's money. And it's certainly going to be a topic of the next presidential election without a doubt. I mean, it has to be on somebody's platform. Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing the rise of more and more Bitcoin politicians. Mm -hmm. And I urge people to really um, not only question whether their politicians have a stance on Bitcoin, but also make sure that they've done the homework. Because as we see this becoming a topic that's a little bit more popular, it's a little bit more trendy, especially with young voters. What I don't want to see is what we call orange washed politicians who basically talk about Bitcoin, but then they make it clear that they really don't understand the technology behind it because they say things like, oh, I'm for Bitcoin, but not the mining process, the proof of work. And then all of a sudden you start to know that they're not, they really don't fully understand because politicians who promote some of the other cryptocurrencies, especially as forms of money, have not done their homework. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so I'm excited to see, you know, politicians really take this up. And I do think I'm very bullish on regulation that's going to happen because mm -hmm. Bitcoin has already been universally recognized as digital property. We have a guy at the head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, who has done a fabulous job explaining Bitcoin on an, an MIT course. I urge everybody to Google it. He has like 24 hours worth of lectures oh. on what Bitcoin is and what blockchain technology is. And it's like, this guy knows exactly what he's talking about. So I hope that he passes a spot ETF soon. And I think more and more regulators are just going to have their staffers get them up to speed to make sure that they make the right decisions on Bitcoin, because it would give the United States such a competitive advantage, especially because of all the debt that we're in. Natalie, one of the resources that you turned me on to in, in, through your podcast was the, the book, uh, The Bitcoin Standard. So I'm, I'm kind of in the process of reading that now. Can you give our listeners very 
a high level overview. How did how did Bitcoin get started and, and how has it evolved over the last 12 years now? Well, so first of all, I just want to say I highly recommend everyone read The Bitcoin Standard by Dr. Saifedina Moose, who's one of the leading economists and engineers, I would say, in the world. And that book really changed my life and career. It caused me to lift the veil of that was over my eyes and really understand the financial system. And it's what's really funny about it is I kind of veered away from it when I first saw the title because I thought it was just a technology book, like a computer programming book. Right. And I was so I, I nothing about it really attracted me. And then what I realized was that the entire book is pretty much a history of our financial system. It's the history of money going back to when we started bartering with like seashells and beads all the way to the present. And the last two or three chapters are about Bitcoin. And so when he gets to those chapters, he talks about how we have a pseudonymous creator, which means that we don't know who created it, but that man, woman, or group created Bitcoin in 2008 as this decentralized protocol, open source. So literally everyone can see the code. And he basically just left, let it go, let it released it into the world and people started mining Bitcoin. And basically mining Bitcoin is just the process of verifying transactions. And those transactions are essentially encased in a block. And those blocks get verified through a consensus mechanism where every miner that's on the Bitcoin network has to basically agree to that verification. And then they get chained together. So it's a series of blocks. So blockchain just refers to a a public ledger of transactions that's blocked together. Mm -hmm. And miners are decentralized around the entire world. And that's the code that was created back in 2008. And what's interesting is Satoshi Nakamoto in the paper, the white paper that released what Bitcoin is and why he or she created it. It talks about central banking and really the problem that we have with our financial system right now. We were at the height of the financial crisis when Bitcoin was released. And so there's a lot of things that are really, really relevant, especially today, now that we're in sort of another bubble that may be popping just uh, over a decade later. And Bitcoin has been around for about 13 years, still very young. It's going through its monetization process, which typically starts as speculation to store of value, to medium of exchange, to unit of account. There are about 10,000 nodes around the world. Nodes are the machines, the computers that run the Bitcoin software and maintain the public ledger. And there are miners spread around the entire world that are verifying the transactions. And Bitcoin in 13 years has gone up almost a million percent and has beat out every other traditional financial asset, gold, S&P 500, Amazon stock, Tesla stock. So it's really spoken for itself, despite mm-hmm. being very, very volatile in the short term. Fantastic. I really appreciate that because I think a lot of people, they hear about it, but they don't necessarily understand how it began or even the basics. So thank you. And I'll put a link to the book, The Bitcoin Standard as well, if anybody's interested in, in checking it out on Amazon. You know, I touched a little bit earlier on the war in Ukraine and and I, I as, a, as a journalist, I'm sure that you've, you've been paying attention to how Bitcoin is, has played a role in, in that war. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's two things I want to say about that. First of all, I think it's put a highlight on the importance of Bitcoin as unconfiscatable property. So we've Mm. seen this tragic situation of Ukrainians having to flee their country and they have to take everything that they hold value in with them. And there's a difference between having to go to a bank and that bank might not might might have a bank run, might be closed, might not give you access to the assets, or you might not be able to even take however much you have there. There's a difference between that and taking your entire life savings with you on a hard drive or memorized in your head as the form of essentially a password. And so that's what Bitcoin offers you. And there are many people who have fled those regions before who, once they come to a border, things get taken and seized from them, whether it's gold bars or cash that they have. At one point, people were trying to flee that region 
in the nineties and they could only take what was the equivalent of 100 us dollars with them. And so think about if they had something like Bitcoin, which is small hard drive, or again, you can have it memorized in your head. So it really allows people to take property and flee and you it's, it's, it's a borderless property. So you can flee anywhere with it. And in the case of an emergency, you know, Bitcoin is really the only property that you'd want to own. You can't take your house with you. You can't take your car. You might not take your gold bars with you or the cash, but you can take Bitcoin certainly anywhere. So refugees have been seeking, soliciting donations in Bitcoin. The government has been soliciting donations in Bitcoin. And I think it's really helped a lot of people. There was like a story that was done, I think on CNBC, where someone literally sent Bitcoin instantly from somewhere in the US to a Ukrainian refugee. And they were able to purchase, they were able to go to an ATM, take that money out and purchase goods like within a couple of minutes. So that's really, really powerful. The second thing I want to say is Putin has been planning this for a very long time. And Putin also said back in, I think it was 2011, that he saw the the US dollar and the US economic policy as basically being a parasite on the global economy that the US dollar's hegemony is basically sucking from everybody else. And I think that there was a plan in motion at that point to make sure that the country is not just dependent on the US dollar as global reserve currency. And so I think that we're seeing moves where Russian officials have basically said that there's a potential that Russian oil could be priced in Bitcoin. I'm not sure how close we are to that, but look, they have real goods. They have commodities that we need. We They have energy, they have wheat, they have things that countries actually need to buy. And so other countries are basically saying, sure, we will, we'll get rubles. We'll pay, we'll pay in digital yuan. We'll do whatever because we need those items. And I think it's starting to put into jeopardy the the position of the U.S. dollar on a global stage, which should be worrisome, right? But we've sort of done this to ourselves. Again, maybe it was with the best of intentions, but we've really done this to ourselves. So the sanctions, I don't think that they've worked in the same way that we've intended, because unfortunately, we now live in this globalized world with technology where people can start to create their own currencies. Countries can create central bank digital currencies, and they can essentially de-dollarize, go off the dollar standard and transact and trade with one another. And I think we're going to see a massive deglobalization over the next 10 years as these technologies increase. But again, one thing that makes me really encouraged is Bitcoin is decentralized. It can't be controlled by any of these countries. So even if Russia, China, they move towards their own centrally backed digital currencies, it's still completely different than Bitcoin because they can expand their supply and set certain rules to the programming of the money. Whereas Bitcoin, you can't, you can't. And it's, it's a universal money. So I'm very bullish on the future, but I think these recent geopolitical tensions have really put a spotlight on some of the properties and use cases for Bitcoin. Couldn't agree more. And it does make you wonder when as a country, we are going to go in all, you know, be full in on all this. If, if Putin has been in it for such a long time and we know that he's mining Bitcoin, it, it's got to be only a matter of time before the United States jumps into this with both feet. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's interesting is the United States actually has a significant amount of Bitcoin and journalists right. that have tried to file FOIA requests to find out exactly how much they never mm. get a response <laughs> because we have, we do have Bitcoin from c- civil forfeitures. And I know that, you know, the U S has been experimenting with a fed coin, a digital currency for a while now. So I'd be interested to know how much we already have. And I really hope that the future policymakers embrace this because whichever country embraces the technology is going to have a major, major advantage. I would think so. Absolutely. It's not going to matter to Bitcoin one way or the other. It's going to matter to us. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. 
You mentioned uh, spot ETFs. Uh, tell us a little bit about why that will have such a, a positive impact on the price of Bitcoin and the adoption of Bitcoin. Sure. So the spot ETF would track the actual price of Bitcoin. It would track the actual asset and it would provide an avenue or a ramp for institutions and big companies to get in. Because right now there's so much that's unclear, especially when it comes to regulation. And a lot of these companies, which have massive compliance and legal teams and departments, they really need sort of that, that green light from Washington, D.C. saying that they can invest in this space. Now, of course, they're not going to probably put their entire balance sheet onto it like some of the very bullish companies that have done that in Bitcoin. But, you know, they they will assume some amount of risk and they have trillions of dollars, some of them under management. So it could really move the Bitcoin price. The reason that Bitcoiners really want the spot ETF is because it actually tracks Bitcoin, the asset. It doesn't create synthetic versions and synthetic right. claims on basically an unlimited supply of Bitcoin. That's really the concern with Bitcoin futures is it kind of creates a limitless amount of Bitcoin in the synthetic sense. And it allows people to bet for or against, and it can essentially create more volatility at the margins, especially mm -hmm. with Wall Street betting one way or another. And so it actually provides more risk to investors. So it was surprising for many of us that the SEC approved the futures ETF, for the spot ETF, but once they do approve a spot ETF, that will that will potentially really send the price going because again, it'll be an on ramp. It'll be sort of a five lane highway for many more institutions to come on board. And you know, those institutions, many of them have so much money that they won't care what the price is. They'll they'll get in at their you know five or ten percent allocation, and it doesn't matter what the price is. But that will make it harder for the retail investor. And so, I really hope to educate more and more people because right now, even though these prices appear high, you know, when you actually price things in Satoshis, which are the fractions of Bitcoin. So one Bitcoin equals a hundred million Satoshis. You actually can get a lot of Satoshis for your money right now. And I think that there is a potential that we live in a world where things are priced in one form of currency, but also maybe Bitcoin or Satoshis. Interesting. You, you mentioned the market and right now the price of Bitcoin seems so linked to the market volatility. Do you think that the spot ETF or there'll be other factors that will kind of decouple Bitcoin and the crypto market from the stock market? Or do you think they're always going to have a, a link? No, I think that eventually it will be less and less correlated. But mm -hmm. right now, right now it has been. I mean, I think that it would be a lie to say that Bitcoin was not a huge beneficiary of the quantitative easing and money printing sure. policies of the Federal Reserve that have been in play at least for the last 10 years, but really uh, over longer than that. And so I think what has happened is a lot of money has flown into assets. And unfortunately, the majority of Americans don't own assets. And so we've seen this ballooning, this bubble happen when it comes to the price of equities. More money flowed into equities in the last year than in the last 17 years combined. We printed 40% of the US dollars that are in circulation. That money had to go somewhere. It generally went into assets. And so I think the Fed is in a really difficult spot right now because we've seen inflation in this country before. We've had it in the 1940s and the 1970s, 80s, but before we didn't have in the in the 80s when Volcker, federal the federal chairman in the 80s was Paul Volcker, he raised interest rates to a significant amount and it caused a short-term recession, but he was able to do that because we didn't have the extreme amount of debt. 
So the reason that they're having trouble raising rates even 0.5 is because we can't service our debt when that happens. And all of these investments start to unwind and people start deleveraging and de-risking. And so you see money just flooding out and you see the dollar strengthening because everyone's moving to cash. That's essentially what we're seeing right now. We have a very leveraged economy that's essentially addicted to a drug and that drug is the money printer. And we're going through the slow stages of withdrawal. So I think it's going to be painful in the short term and people should be really, really careful because Bitcoin also benefited from that easy money and from that quantitative easing. The question will be, and the question that I am wondering this entire week, and and as I see this all play out, is how low will this all go? I do not see Bitcoin going to zero. Will it fall harder than this? I absolutely think it could as more liquidity just gets drained out, more of the excess gets drained out and cleansed, which, you know, in the long run is probably a really good thing because again, we have so much debt and we've had such an excess. We've had so much fluff in the system because money had to go somewhere. Now we're seeing that sort of drain out and the chips are falling. But, you know, at some point, if there are sectors in danger, like they were in 08, 09, like if the banking sector is in danger of, you know, default or collapse, then the Fed will step in. But right now, I think they're allowing the tech market and the tech stocks and, of course, crypto along with it to really start to pop and unwind a bit because that has been where most of the money has gone to. And Mm -hmm. so I think it could get worse. But ultimately, where I see it no longer being correlated is when more and more people, A, learn about Bitcoin, B, there's more institutional ramps where companies can invest, and people understand that this system, which is backed by credit and debt that can unwind at the drop of a hat if interest rates go up, the whole thing can just kind of topple over. There's this parallel system that exists that is truly scarce truly decentralized and a true form of hard money just in a digital format. So I think there needs to be that learning process. And and I don't think it's going to be an easy transition in the sense that we have so much excess that there's got to be more pain because the bubble has gotten so big. But at the same time, they can come back in with the money printer and try to inflate it again. I just, how many times can you inflate the bubble? That's, you know. Yeah, exactly. At some point it has to end. So I, I know you've had some amazing folks on, on the Coin Stories podcast, and I would recommend anybody who's interested in, in this space to, to tune in, subscribe to Natalie's podcast. One of one of the, the leading voices, obviously, in Bitcoin is Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy, who continues to put more and more Bitcoin onto his balance sheet. A lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are pastors, they're the leader of Catholic nonprofit. They might be an advancement director. They might be sitting on a board of a, of a religious nonprofit. And, and so we work a lot in that space. And, and, I, and I wonder at what point, uh, and, and a lot of my colleagues are also the head of a, of a foundation, a Catholic foundation with that oversee many, many, many millions of dollars in assets. At what point do some of those organizations begin to think about putting Bitcoin on the balance sheet, just as the for-profit organizations do. And again, just to preface this, not financial advice, but but what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I absolutely think we're going to see it. And especially as institutional adoption grows, and we do have more of those on-ramps when regulation is a little bit more clear as far as Bitcoin being property, whereas the other cryptocurrencies are securities. Mm-hmm. I think we will see that. And that will that will mean not only companies, but pension funds that really, really badly need it, especially given the performance of bonds. That sure. will mean endowments, universities. 
And that will mean, I think also religious institutions, nonprofits, I think this would be a huge boom for them. And it's a great opportunity. And I know that, you know, obviously it is very expensive, but Bitcoin, you have to look at it as a long-term investment. This isn't a trade. And I I would hope that those institutions are not in it to try to trade it. It's this long-term strategy that I think is akin to what bonds used to be when they had high yields, right? right? We used to be able to put our faith in bonds. That at one point became the savings technology then it moved to stocks. And and it's like, this is what has happened with our monetary policy. We have had to keep like cycling through what is actually the way to beat inflation and and maintain the purchasing power of your money and try to make a profit because you can't just put your money in the bank anymore. And that's silly. Why, Why is that the case? It's because our financial system is so broken. Yeah, exactly. As we get to, towards the end here and before we wrap up, do you see that Bitcoin could make an impact on the church or on religious organizations? I mean, absolutely. I think that religious organizations, in order to do what they want to do, they need to be able to have not only you know funds to access in order to create their their projects and and mission work and you know gain community outreach opportunities, but also just. I think that there's just a feeling that you need to have in terms of being a part of these that you can plan for the future and that the future is going to be better than the present. And that's what really I think a form of hard money that is constantly increasing in value over the long term offers people. I think, you know, the, one of the reasons why I feel so passionately about this is because I do come from a faith background. And I believe that if you're a good person and you work hard, you should be able to take care of your family. Like it's pretty simple. We all have very universal needs. We have the need to connect. We have a need for family. We have a need for, you know, recognition. And, and I think we we also get a lot out of working hard and contributing to one another and making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And we can't do that in an easy way when the money is manipulated and is basically pooling with the, the elites and the insiders and everyone else is fighting over scraps. That's, that's not really, you know, a a good situation to be in. And I think that people are driven to be more collaborative and to have more faith and more connection and be more positive when they don't have to worry so much about the basic things. And so I honestly think like it helps in that way. The most we've lost a lot of faith in this country. And I can kind of see why, because as we, as we couple money with power, you know, I can understand why some people question, you know, what, why, why do these horrible things happen in this world? Uh, And I think Bitcoin kind of offers people a way to look at the future with so much more hope and vision and positivity. And I think that again, there's like so much provenance to be found in that. And the nice piece is, uh, one of the things is that you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy just a little piece of Bitcoin and hang on to it for the future. And and, and it's it's uh, it's an amazing opportunity, especially right now, because it's on sale. Just for fun at the, at the very end here, Natalie, where do you think uh, Bitcoin could go over the next 10 years? Yeah, I mean, I, I truly think that the potential for Bitcoin is really limitless because mm-hmm. you have 8 billion people that can come right. onto the network. We have only, I think, 2% of the world population that currently owns Bitcoin. It's about 40 million Americans, although I think there are a lot of Americans out there who own it and don't really understand what they own. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I think the point that you made is really important because so many people get intimidated by the price, like, oh, it's 40,000 a coin or 20,000 a coin. Well, again, you can break it down into fractions of a Bitcoin and B- Bitcoin is divided into these Satoshis. So essentially think of it like cents or dollars. And I think that's really important to remember because this is buying into a very, very young technology network that has a very scarce 
native currency behind it that no one can ever expand the supply of. And it's again, decentralized. Whereas people start to get attracted to these other tokens and projects that exist out there because they think, oh, well, it's a couple pennies, Mm -hmm. but there's a person or a group behind that project that can make it 5 million tokens today and (laughs) 4 million tokens tomorrow and uh, 10 billion the next day. And we have a cautionary tale right now in the headlines with Luna and Terra. That's where everyone is flooding to. They're flooding to the Twitter account of the, essentially the C, the one guy that's behind, you know, the, the, the project and there's a team with him, but we're looking to one person for, for safety and for what's going to happen. And, and the price essentially went to almost zero. Be very, very, very careful about investing in these penny stocks and gambling and trying to buy a lottery ticket. It's very different. It's essentially like gambling on early website companies in the dot-com bubble. Bitcoin is the internet. Like Bitcoin is your betting on the internet is the internet of money. It's very different, you know? So I just want to caution people with that as well. Oh, I I just want to double underscore that, you know, probably 98% of all coins that you see today are probably going to be gone in the next five to 10 years. And ultimately what we're going to be left is Bitcoin and probably a handful of others that will make the market go. So as we said at the beginning of this podcast, please do your research, invest very carefully. And as Natalie said, you you can buy a piece of it. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin if you want to put $100 into it, $50, whatever, and just watch it grow. I personally own Bitcoin and I look at it as a long-term investment. I'm waiting for the 10 or 15-year long-term payout to see uh, where it's all headed. So, um, And I try not to look at it every day, but I'd be lying if I said (laughs) I didn't look at the price of Bitcoin every day. But I, I find it fascinating. I've spent some time myself over the last six months really educating myself in the crypto world. And I just find it it's definitely uh, where the world is headed and the church needs to be a part of that and it needs to be in partnership with that and understand that there is a place for us in that. So Natalie, any closing comments or thoughts? Uh, no, I mean, you you really said it there. And I just want to remind people that when you purchase your house, you don't check the price of that every day, right? So <laughs> right. <laughs> really just look, look at it as a long-term investment for sure. If right. anyone ever has questions, I'm available. I love chatting with people and helping hold their hand down this, this journey, this rabbit hole. And I know things are volatile right now, but everyone's hurting. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, it's not, it's not Bitcoin. It's, it's everything right now. And there's, there's reasons behind that, but um, I'm really excited about the future and I'm, I'm very uh, hopeful about it through Bitcoin. Natalie, thank you for spending some time with us on today's podcast. So grateful to you. Congratulations with all of the work that you're doing. And we'll continue to uh, listen to you on the coin stories podcast. Thanks so much. Take care. God bless. I want to thank Natalie for joining us on our show today. She was incredible, wasn't she? Again, I'll leave a link to Natalie's show, the Coin Stories podcast, in our show notes of this episode. Drop me a comment if you enjoyed this show and if you'd like to see more on this topic. Bitcoin is so early in its adoption and we're still all learning this new technology together. Again, I'm so grateful to Natalie for joining us on our show today. If this is your first time listening to Advancing Our Church, I hope you'll stick around and subscribe. You can find us on all places where you download your favorite podcasts. You can find us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And for more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com.
Well, that's our show this week. Special thanks to Pottery Studios for another great show. And if you'd like to help our show, please leave us a five-star rating wherever you downloaded this podcast. Those ratings make a huge difference in helping people find our show. I want to thank all of you who have already taken a moment to give us a rating. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, and we are a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for more than two decades. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Have a terrific week. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Take care and God bless.